right? So today is the day that some of you have been waiting for and the day that some of you have been dreading, right? Um, If you're new to fellowship today, we are in the book of Song of Solomon, which is a book in the Old Testament of our Bible. And it is called the Song of Solomon. In some translations, it's called the Song of Songs and other translations. But what it is, is it is the love story between a man and a woman, between the king of Israel, Solomon, the wisest, richest man that we see in Scripture, and this woman that he loved. Um, and her, we don't know her name, we know her nickname, we, 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 we see hints about who she is, but we have gotten to see them move through all these stages of a relationship. We got to see them be attracted to one another. And what was great is we, as, we, as we work our way through this, we see what a godly relationship looks like because their attraction to each other wasn't based on what you might think. Even though he was the king and, and powerful and wise, she was attracted to his identity and character, not to his bank account, right? And even though she's beautiful, he was attracted to her identity and character, not, not her beauty. And then we saw them date. And as we saw them date, we saw that words have something. Church, do you remember what words have? Words have power. And we saw the words that he spoke to her of, of peace and, and of beauty and just how good that is. And then we saw their, their engagement phase, kind of what we call it. We saw them before marriage, and we saw that relationships require work, and that work is based on the work of Christ. And, and, and we saw that, that she had to step into his world to understand who he was. And, and, and again, he used words to draw her out and, 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 to, and to know her. And then two weeks ago, uh, last week we had Serve Asheville. Thank you for all, you, all of you who participated. And, and, and the week before that, we got to see a wedding where they got married, and we got to see them celebrate this good and godly relationship. They got to celebrate their purity, their commitment to God, and it was this this great celebration of a relationship done right. We saw them freely express love to one another because that love had been expressed to them. Well, today we get a glimpse into something very private because today we get to see the honeymoon. We get to see what happens behind closed doors. Turn with me to Song of Solomon. We'll be in chapter 4, verse 1. We'll do all of chapter 4 and then the first verse of chapter 5. If you need a Bible, there's some right in front of you. It's on page 456 of that Bible, or you can download the Bible app, and we're there under, under events and then under Fellowship Asheville. And today we get to see what happens after the wedding. And, 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 and to be completely clear, here's what we get to see. We get to see this couple have sex. If you're new to fellowship today, welcome. <laughs> All right, but, but here's why I think this is important. Because church, we need to be talking about sex. Let me ask you a question. Where did you first hear about sex? Don't raise your hand and answer. Just think about it. All right? Where did you first hear about sex? Listen to this. Planned Parenthood, which is a leading abortion provider in the U.S., has said that 95% of their clients have not talked to their parents about sex. 95% of their clients. Yet research shows that in all the way kids and teenagers can hear about sex, the most influential voice is that of their parents. Yet only 5% of those uh, parents talk openly about sex with their children. Why is that? I would imagine that most of us didn't find out about sex from our parents, right? Um, I'm going to go off script here a little bit. Um, My parents, when my dad talked to me about sex for the first time, 
it was the most awkward display of communication that you've ever seen. Because it was basically, do you know how babies are made? And I said, yes. And he said, good. <laughs> right? And then he proceeded, just to make sure I knew, had me watch this awful movie called Blue Lagoon, which is the story, <laughs> right? Which is the... I know, which is the story of two teenagers stuck on an island with no clothes. No, it's not that one. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, that, that was awful. It was the most awkward thing ever. Because today, here's the deal, just like me, kids find out about sex from their friends. They find out about it from the internet because it's just clicks away. What used to be difficult to access is now super simple to get a hold of. As a matter of fact, parents, if you aren't talking about sex to your kids by like third or fourth grade, you're late. And so the question is this, why don't we talk about sex? I would propose that we aren't comfortable talking about sex with our kids because we aren't comfortable talking about sex, right? That we think that God is pleased with what we do with our hands and our feet and, and in our service to him. When, when, when we serve God to the, to the building up of the church and for the good of the city. It, but, but God isn't necessarily concerned with what we do with our entire body to serve him. That he's pleased with what we do in the church and in the city. But he ignores what we do in the bedroom. And we've decided if what we do behind closed doors doesn't matter to God then we shouldn't talk about it. Well, what we're going to see today is just the opposite because y'all, right here in your Bible, God is going to talk about sex between a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman within marriage, and he is going to talk about it as this pleasurable expression of service to God. We are going to see a couple have sex and then God is going to give a commentary on it. Can you imagine? Now, here's what's crazy, too. Not only are we going to get to see this couple have sex, we're going to see the gospel in these verses. Y'all, we are going to see the gospel in sex because that is our God. And we're going to see how deeply he is concerned about what we take pleasure in. Now, for those of you who are really uncomfortable right now and want to take notes on something and want to write them down, let me give you an outline of today's passage, all right? So here's what we're going to do. Verses one, uh, verses 4, 1 through 5, we're going to see the approach, right? So you can write this down. Verses 6 through 11 is the invitation. In verses 12, 4, 12 through 5, 1, we're going to see the response to that invitation. We're going to see words and tenderness and touch, and we're going to see a reaction. Well, before... Let's look at this first section, chapter 4, verse 1. But here's what you have to know. Let me paint the context of what's happening here. This is a typical Jewish wedding, right? So, so <clears throat> the groom came to get his bride. We saw that last week in this chariot with the purple couch, if you remember. Brought her to the, to the wedding ceremony. So they had this wedding. We saw that. And now they're, they're, they're experiencing their honeymoon. And so for us, we need to understand, like, they haven't hopped on a plane and flown to Jamaica, Right? In a Jewish, in a typical Jewish wedding, what would happen is there would be the wedding ceremony and then they would usher them into a room next door. Keep in mind, these rooms on inner chambers were lattice work rooms, right? So, so they're not in a soundproof room. They're in a room right next to the party and the expectation was that they would enter this room, consummate the marriage, and then come back out and join the party. Can you imagine... <laughs> 
here's what happened first service, and I kid you not, I just saw it today too. Guys in this room went, yeah, I can imagine that. And girls were like, no, this is exactly what's happening right here. All right, so, so they've had this wedding celebration, and now they're ushered into this room. And look at how this starts. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. This is, this is, is him speaking to her, obviously. And, and it has been said, and, and you know, my own marriage proves this and, and research indicates this, that the primary sex organ, in other words, like the first sex organ for a woman is her mind right? For a guy, it is his eyes, but for a woman, it is her mind. And this guy knows he has invited this woman into a very vulnerable, tender moment where she is going to be exposed, and he is going to be exposed, and he is going to use words, because words have what? Power. And he is going to speak to her beauty, Now, nowhere in here do you see him calling out any imperfections in her, although some of it's going to need some explanation because this is poetry. But but he is going to speak to her beauty. Now, guys, I've said this time and time again, and I'll keep saying it. You don't need to point out uh, your spouse's physical flaws. They see them. Your job is to speak to beauty, is to speak to what God is doing. And this is what he does, is he speaks to what is beautiful. He speaks to what is beautiful about his bride. And look at the rest of verse 1. It says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down from the slopes of Gilead. Now, let's just assume this was positive. <laughs> right? Because remember, this is Poetry. And poetry uses pictures of things that are familiar to them. And this is an agricultural and farming and livestock was very familiar to them. It's believed that she worked in the fields. I mean, we saw that, that she's from the country. And so all those, these, all of these illustrations are ones that you probably shouldn't use today, right, as words to speak beauty. And their eye, in, in, in her ears and in, and in their world, it meant something. It meant that her eyes were beautiful. And it meant that her hair, her hair was black and wavy. And, and because of the dress at that time, this may have been the first time that he's actually gotten this close to see her eyes and, and to see the length of her hair. And this picture he's painting, it meant, something, it meant something good to them. And how do we know? Because she's smiling. Look at the next verse in verse 2. He says, Your teeth are like flocks of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing." All of which bears a twin, and not one among them has lost its young. Y'all, this is what he's saying. You got all your teeth. (laughs) Right? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. She has all of her teeth, but now he's going to step up his game a little bit. Verse 2. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. Now, he's looking at her lips, all right? So he's taken the veil off, he's taken the headdress off, and he's looking at her lips. And so this is very much like kiss talk. You know how, how you are with your spouse or, or even the, the person you're dating, and, 
and, and they're talking, and you want to kiss, and you stop looking at their eyes, and you kind of look down to their lips, you know, and you kind of do that as, as they're talking and kind of giving that clue of, yeah, I, I, I kind of want those lips on my lips, right? And so that's what, that's what he's doing, and he's talking about her lips, and he talks about her cheeks. Now, her cheeks could be red for one of two reasons. They did have cosmetics then, so she could have a little Mary Kay on, right? She could, she could do that to the special day, uh, or she could be getting flushed. She could be she could be getting steamed up a little bit and, and, and getting excited. He's calling attention to that. Well, now his, his attention moves down. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. Again, let's assume this is positive, right? But here's what it shows. Like, this is their honeymoon. He is the king of the nation, and, and she is a girl from the country, a girl from the fields. And she could be embarrassed. There could be shame. She could be looking down at the ground, but she's not. Her, her head is held high. And he is acknowledging that, that, that there is no shame, that her neck is, is, is like a tower. And when I was in Jackson, Tennessee, and like in the south of the south, they, they had this phrase that, that women had a magnolia back. If they were a woman of nobility, in a woman of, of, of stature, in a woman who was proud and no shame in her, she had a magnolia back. He is saying that there is no shame in her and there is no shame in what they're doing. Which is shocking because if you remember at the beginning, she said she was unworthy to look at. But his words have power and he has spoken to her beauty for so long she now sees herself as beautiful as he does. Well, not only is she not ashamed, she's also at peace. The rest of verse 4 says, And on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Uh, chances are she did have a necklace on. It was very customary for the groom to give the bride a necklace during their engagement time. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's coming for me. Um, uh, during their engagement time, and, and it, it, she probably had that, and he's speaking to that, but he's also speaking to her character in this. When uh, a, a warrior came back from battle, they would hang their shields on the wall on these pegs. As a matter of fact, uh, if, if your family has a coat of arms and a crest, a lot of times you will see a shield, and then around that shield is all these tattered like fabric pieces around it. The reason it's that way is because a warrior would have a cloak that they wore and then a shield that they fought with. And when they came back from war, uh, they, every, every warrior had a peg to represent them so that if there was no shield and no uh, cloak hanging there, you would know that they died in battle. But for the ones who came back in the time of peace, they would take that cloak and hang it on the peg. And the more tattered the cloak was, the more valiant their fighting was. And so the, so the more tattered you see in a coat of arms, it's this picture of, of, of a valiant warrior. But they would hang the shield on the peg to show that it was a time of peace. They didn't need it. They didn't need to fight. And so not only is there no shame in what's happening, there's also this great peace about what's happening. Right? And peace is good for this couple. Look at verse Look at verse 5, because now he's going to move down a little bit further. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that gaze among the lilies. All right, so now he's undressed her, and she's exposed. And he's saying that he likes what he sees, but he acknowledges something. A fawn is a young deer, and a gazelle is this small, skittish animal. And both are very easily spooked because they're trained 
to look for predators. And they're trained to always be on guard. And if, and if a twig snaps not, that's not supposed to snap, they don't even look. They just run, right? Because that's what a, a fawn and a gazelle does. And he's saying that she is beautiful and he is tender. And he's not going to do anything that'll scare her away. And so his words, although they're talking about towers and shields and sheep and goats and all this stuff, his words to her are very romantic words. And this idea of romance came from the Middle Ages where the formal language was Latin and everything was written in Latin. Legal forms were written in Latin. Uh, Anything important was written in Latin, but yet you had this art springing up and poetry and music. And it was written in the languages of the city and the countries that it came from. And those became known as the Romantic languages because, because Latin was the formal language. And these were these informal languages that the people would sing songs and write poetry about. And so it became known as this common language. And so these Romantic words that he's using are, is this common language that's just between the, the two of them. And and in your relationship with your spouse, you have this romantic language that's common between just the two of you. That's what they're doing. They're using this romantic language, and it's meant something to them. It's this sexy talk between the two of them, and it's affirming. And so, men, let me ask you, what, what are some of your romantic words with your wife? Do you have a nickname for your bride that's, that's sweet and that's tender? Do you have a way that you speak to her that's just between the two of you that affirms her, that's, that's unlike anybody else talks to her? You see, his approach is romantic and word-based, and it's tender. And he's not out to rush this. He's not about to shock her. You see, romantic words are this invitation into sex. And we're going to see in a little bit that sex is always an invitation. It's not an expectation. And he's using words to draw her in. Now, my wife has kind of latched on to this passage, particularly when we were first married. Because remember, a guy's primary sex organ is his eyes, right? That's the first thing. And there'd be times where, like, she was changing clothes. And I would, I would be in there. And I would see her changing clothes, and my eyebrows would go up, and I would forget the whole romantic words and, and all that stuff, and I would just start making my approach. She'd go, Fonz and Gazelles, Fonz and Gazelles. <laughs> Which was my way, her way to kind of remind me to step back, reset, and approach again differently, right? <laughs> right? Fonz and Gazelles, that's what, that's what she would say. His approach is romantic, and it's words, and it's tender. But now we see his invitation, because y'all, this is important, that, that it's an invitation, not an expectation. And so you invite your spouse into sex. You don't, you don't expect them. You invite them into sex. Look at verse 6. He says, until the day breathes and until the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. And so he's telling her in this invitation, he's saying, baby, we can do this all night long, Right? I don't think I need to explain the hill of frankincense and the mountain of myrrh. I've talked about it in, the, in a different sermon. Um, if you haven't heard those sermons, let me just tell you, the hill of frankincense and the mountain of myrrh don't exist on Google Maps, right? He is not talking about a geographical location. He is talking about her and her body. And look at what else this invitation includes. Verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now, here's what's crazy, y'all. This isn't just the honeymoon phase. 
although it's part of it. We're going to see what happens after the honeymoon in the rest of this book. But he is looking at his bride. <clears throat> and in his eyes, she is perfect. Now, we know she isn't perfect. We know he's not perfect. No human is. But in his eyes, she was. Now, And it's good for us to pause here because here's the deal. We know our spouses better than anybody else, which means we can often be the most critical of our spouses more than anybody else. We can find it much easier to point out the flaws instead of beauty. And you know what happens when you point out flaws instead of beauty over time? If you're the voice of criticism in your spouse's life over time, criticism turns to bitterness. And then over time, bitterness turns to hate. And do you know what hate turns into, which is the scariest thing to see? Hate turns into apathy. And you see this couple that's just existing together. You see this couple that would make great roommates, but not husband and wife anymore. And see, here's something that I've learned as a leader. And I think, I think it's true not only in church life, I think it's true in home life as well. That when dealing with someone, you always have two choices in how you deal with them over time. And this is over time. This is general. I'm not saying you don't point out uh, sin in someone's life. You don't point out flaws. But over time, what are you known for? You can be the person that continually points out what they're doing wrong. Or you, the, or you can be the person that points out where God is working in their life. You can be the person that continually shoots arrows at error or you can be the person that fans the flame of God. And I tell you what I have found that works better every single time is when you fan the flame of God, then you will see great transformation. When you speak to what God is doing, you will see change. Because here's the deal about criticism. You can always find something wrong, right? Anybody can walk into a situation, anybody can look at a life and say, this is what's wrong. That doesn't take a big degree. And if you look for what's wrong, you're always going to find it. But when you start looking for what God is doing, guess what? You begin to see that too. And when you speak to that, it brings transformation. And here's what you can do. You can, you can actually tell them with words what you see God doing, where, where you want to fan the flame of God in their life. You can write notes. You can, you can send text messages, emails. You can actually sit down and have a long conversation about it. You can have a short conversation about it and just say, hey, this is what I see God doing in your life. And then say what it is and say, I'm so proud of you for taking that step of obedience and trust. I so honor that about your, what you're doing. Now, you may have to look hard. Remember, he commented that she had all of her teeth. You got to start somewhere, right? But when you fan the flame of what God is doing, these are words of transformation. Listen to these words from Ephesians because it's powerful. He says, husbands, love, this is from Ephesians 5, uh, chapter, verse 25 through 30. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we love that part. And here's what the rest of it says, that, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, with the word so that he might present the church to himself with splendor. So, so Paul goes from talking about a marriage relationship to talking about the church because they're very connected. That he might present the church to himself in splendor, without, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing 
that she might be holy and without blemish. And then he goes back to husbands. In the same way, husbands, you should love, uh, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And, and the reason he says that, what I love about guys is when you're getting ready in the morning, like you look in the mirror just to see if you're street legal and then leave, right? Like you, you don't mind overlooking a lot of blemishes, but yet when it comes to marriages and our spouses, we can tend to, to speak to those blemishes. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is what, what, what Paul is saying that is said about you, that you, as part of the church, which means you have said yes to Jesus, you have said yes to, to the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for you to take away the power and penalty of your sin so you can have this good and right relationship with God. And here's what's crazy. When you say yes to Jesus, it changes the way God sees you. In John, the book of John, uh, there's this, this picture of, of, of the disciples looking at these, these people that don't know Jesus, and Jesus says the wrath of God rests on them. But yet when they say yes to Jesus, it changes how God sees them. No longer do they see his wrath on people. But when God looks at the church, when God looks at those who have said yes to Jesus, he sees us without blemish. He sees us without wrinkle. He sees us as holy, which means because of Jesus, if you're a Jesus follower, when the God who loves you and created you looks at you, he sees you as beautiful and perfect. He sees you as holy. We look in the mirror and we see the wrinkles and sunspots, right? We see the sin in our life. Somehow, God sees you as perfect. God sees you as holy because of what Jesus did for you. And because of Jesus, God sees your beauty. And because of Jesus, we can enjoy this type of relationship with God. Now, y'all, this is important because I know I don't live like that all the time. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say I barely live like that. I live more like a person who doesn't know Jesus than a person who does. Because I live a life focusing on my failures and my sins. But yet, because of Jesus, God sees me completely different. 2 Corinthians says that, that, that if you have said yes to Jesus, that you are a new creation. The old has gone, and behold, the new has come. God says that about you. And if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, let today be the day that you do that so that you can experience that type of relationship with God. And for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, then we need to know that God sees us as flawless and beautiful. And if God sees us this way, maybe we can see the beauty in somebody else and see what God is doing in their lives. Because this is how he saw his bride. And then he invites her into more. Look at verse 8. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart to the peak of Amana." to the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and from the mountains of leopards. And so what he is doing here is he is inviting her into unity, to leave behind her former life and to start a new one with him. We call this leave and cleave, and that's what he's asking her to do. Leave your family behind and cleave to him. 
And it's believed that she is from the country, and so he's poetically inviting her to leave, to leave the dangers of the country, the lions and the leopards and the things that scared her, and to start this new life and unity with him. And when you marry, this happens, that whole leave and cleave. You leave your family of origin. Daddy cuts up the credit card. You are on your own with this guy, right? You are on your own with this girl. And you are starting a new family together. And it also means that when you have a bad day, you don't call your mom first. You call your spouse first. Especially if they're the one that's causing your bad day. Right? You leave and you cleave. And that's what he is inviting her into. He's inviting her in to that kind of relationships. That her allegiance is now with him and and not her family, not her her parents. And now his invitation moves on. Verse 9, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drink drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Now, he's finally gotten his kiss. He's finally gotten his kiss, and he describes it as milk and honey. Now, what does that remind you of? Milk and honey. For you Old Testament scholars out there, what what is that? The promised land, right? It's the land that God had promised that would be flowing with with milk and honey, and and he is saying that she is his promised land. She is the one that God has given. And look at this in verse 12. He says, A garden locked up is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all the choicest fruits, henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, and all choice spices, a garden fountain, a wellspring of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. And so her garden is locked. And he's saying she is a virgin. She has been with no man. And here's what's important. Does he force his way in? No. Because this is an invitation. Remember, Sex is always an invitation, not an expectation, and he awaits her response, and we're about to see her respond, but here's what I want you to see, is that this proper invitation, a proper invitation does yield a proper response. He had the right set of mind, that it was words that were, that were to woo her, and words that were to romance her, and it was an invitation. She could have declined here and said, no, not tonight, not right now. Well, we're going to see that she understands something, but we are going to see her do that next week. And we're going to see how even when that invitation is, is rejected, what he does that is beautiful. Because he understands that sex is an invitation, not, not an expectation. Well, let's look at her response in verse 16. So this is the first time she speaks in this, in this chapter, and she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, and let its spices flow. Hello. So what is her response? She welcomes him in. 
Now, I think great sex to a woman is what we've seen this man do. That her primary sex organ is her mind, and so he has used words and comfort and peace and security and tenderness. And great sex to a man is about response. Here's what I mean by that. You will never hear a man say, shh, not so loud. Right? You just won't do it. Because we need to know that what we're doing is right. I saw this meme once that it was a, that, that sex to a man, and it was a light switch with one switch. Sex to a woman, and it had like this NASA control panel. <laughs> right? What worked yesterday doesn't work the next time. Right? I don't know why, but that's just true. And, 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 and men need a response. And notice, here's what's crazy. If you look at verse 16, she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. What's the, what's the punctuation there? Exclamation mark. Y'all, she is shouting at him. Now, where did I say this episode was taking place? The next door. What happened at that wedding party is all the women just went, <gasps> and all the men just went, yes, yes. Right? This is what's happening. You see, ladies, your response in sex can never be too passionate. Your guy needs to know that you're invested in this, that you're in this. Notice how else she responds. Look at the rest of verse 16. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat of its choice, choicest fruits. She understands something that Paul picks up on in the New Testament. She calls her body his garden. And this couple understands something. Paul says it in a, in a different way, I think probably in a clear way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says this. He says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another, except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, they understand that their purpose in sex was to bring pleasure to the other. Right? And y'all, this is countercultural. In our time, sex is about personal pleasure, not about pleasing your spouse. It's about what I can get, not what I can give. In the Bible... Sex is about serving your spouse. It's about bringing pleasure to the other. You see, God is pleased when we bring pleasure to our spouse. And then the response continues. Look at, at chapter 5, verse 1. He said, uh, this is him speaking. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. So in other words, they had sex. And it was good. And he is grateful. And he is satisfied in the sex of his spouse. He's not looking for it anyplace else. But there's this other response that we need to see because God's about to speak. And he's going to speak through this choir. It's not the, 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 the voice of God, but it's the voice of God through this choir. And God's going to give a commentary on the sex that they just had. Look at what he says through this choir. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. 
And so here's what he is saying. Many believe, like I said, that this is the voice of God through this choir, and this couple has just had sex on their honeymoon, and, and their, their wedding was celebrated as, as they pursued purity rightly and committed to one another. And God's comment on this is to, guess what? Enjoy it. Enjoy it. What you just did was good. You know what's fun about reading commentaries on the Song of Solomon? It depends on what era it was written as to what the, the, the commentators say. If you read a Puritan version of this, it is all about the gospel, uh, which is hilarious because they're like the hills of frankincense and the hills of myrrh, or the Old Testament, the New Testament, and, and the sachet of, perfu- of, of aromatic, uh, aromatic uh, rocks that rest between it are the gospels. And, and I'm like, that, I, don't, I don't think that's really what that's talking about. I think it could be, but you get to something like this, and we need to know what God thinks about sex. Because, at least in our culture, it's real easy to think sex is dirty. Mostly that's because a lot of the sex that we've seen is sinful sex. And we bring that into our marriage and and it just messes with stuff. But God is saying, look at this sex. It's beautiful. And here's what I love about this. Until this final verse you would think that what we just saw was like Christian porn, right? We just saw this couple have sex, and it was voyeuristic. We needed God to speak. We needed a commentary on this because we need to know what God thinks about sex between a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman in marriage. And up until this point, they have been told to wait, to not arouse or awaken love before it's time. But here we see God delight, and his delight is is in that we take pleasure in what he has provided the way he has provided. And did you know, if you were to take this book, Song of Solomon, and you were to cut it right in half, it would land right here at this verse. This verse is right in the middle of this book. Because this book is about relationships. This book at its core is about pleasure, and it is about what God thinks about it. This book isn't about sex. It is about God honoring pleasure and God honoring sex. This book is about, about tenderness and, and, and passion and, and, and loud, responsive, sexy, romantic, real, and most importantly, serving the other sex. And so y'all, God is pleased in our right pleasure. That's what this book is telling us. When God talks about sex this way, he talks about it with a smile on his face. And if God is pleased with that pleasure of the other sex in marriage, and if God is behind that closed door with us, do we need to not talk about it? Do we need to hide it? Church, do we need to be afraid to talk about sex? This is where it would be nice to get a response. So let me try it again. Church, based on what we've seen here, do we need to be afraid to talk about sex? No. You know why? The world needs to see what God thinks. The world needs to see that there is a way for sex to be good and right and holy. I think I've shared before 
that I was having this conversation with a guy. This was uh, shortly after college. I had been a believer for months, maybe a year, maybe a little bit longer, but not very long. And I was hanging out with a bunch of guys over the weekend. They were all believers, but one guy had his cousin come, and his cousin um, just slept around with anybody. I mean, he was, I, I, I still wonder why he was here. And the guy organizing the trip, who this was his cousin, said, hey, I'm going to put him in the room with you because I want you to talk to him. All right. And so we start talking. He's not a believer. And, and we start talking. I said, hey, man, I, I just asked him. I said, hey, man, your cousin told me that you like to sleep around. He's like, yeah, I do. Why not? I said, I have a question for you. He said, okay. I said, how do you feel about doing it? He said, I feel awesome. I said, no, really. Like, when you go home, when she leaves, you leave, you go home, you look in the mirror. How do you feel? He said, I feel good. I said, really? He goes, well, I mean, I do feel a little dirty. I said, yeah, there's a better way. You see, the world needs to know that there is a better way. And listen, I'm no fool, too, to think everybody in this room is perfect. That's why we need Jesus. He really does make all things new. And if you've messed up, today can be the day that you get it right. Today can be the day that you can trust him and you can start new. And we're going to go into communion here. And, and as we do, I think it's important that we understand how God sees us, right? It's important to know that God sees us as perfect and as holy and as beautiful. Because I'm going to tell you, here's the homework I'm going to give you. This week, if you're married, what I want you to do is I want you to speak to what God is doing in your spouse's life. I want you to do it through a note, through an email, through spoken word. I want you to say what you see that is beautiful in your spouse, what you see that God is doing in your spouse. And the only way you can do that is if you see them the way God sees them. And the only way you can do that is to know how God sees you. Now, if you're not married, I want you to, to in your circle of friends, I want you to speak to what God is doing among your circle of friends. And the only way you can do that is to know what God is doing in you and knowing how God sees you. And because of what this table represents, because of what Jesus has done, God sees us as holy and as blameless. And y'all, I want us to meditate on that before we come up and take the table. And if you're a Jesus follower, come up and take the juice and take the cracker. The way this works here at Fellowship is the band will come up and, and, and play some background music. Uh, pray if you need to pray, sit if you need to sit. When you're ready, come up, grab a juice, grab a cracker, go back to your seat, and we'll take the elements together. And like I said, if, you're, if you have said yes to Jesus, this table is for you. If you haven't said yes to Jesus, that's okay. Wait if you need to wait. Don't, don't force yourself to come down. But, but if today is your day, maybe this will be your first act of faith, is to take communion. Because what this table represents is that Jesus died for you. His body was broken and his blood was shed for you so that you can have a relationship with God that, who, who loves you and created you and sees you as perfect, holy, and blameless. So I'm going to pray for us and let's meditate on that and we'll take communion and sing one more song of worship. Jesus, you see us as perfect and you see us as holy because of, 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 of the sacrifice that 
that was made on the cross because of the resurrection that proved that everything was true. And, and God, I don't understand how you can look at me and not see my sin, but you don't. Because of what Jesus has done, you choose to take that and, and put it aside and, and to see me as holy and blameless and to have this relationship with me blows my mind. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. And yet it is there. And, and Father, as we come into this time of communion, may that settle deep in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.